John Suntress started his Word Balloon podcast years before anyone else did in 2005, and he is one of the most popular podcasts that covers comics, movies, and what he calls nerd culture. Well, John, I talked to you before and you talked a lot about your radio career, but you've just had a huge anniversary that has to do with your podcast. How old is your podcast right now? Uh, May 10th, it turned 16. 16 years. Pretty crazy. That is incredible. That was actually my mom's birthday, but that's <laughs> really incredible. Um, and I want to talk to you about podcasting because now everybody has a podcast practically. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good, Margaret, because I swear, literally since I started all of my radio friends, I'm like, you know, it's good insurance to have a podcast because if you do get fired, bring your, I mean, immediately you can, you know, bring your audience with you. And even in 2005, social media was starting to get big enough that, you know, on, on message boards or wherever you were beyond your radio platform, it's like, yeah, come, come along. If you, you know, don't worry, I'm off, but you know, I'm here until I get the next gig. And luckily for people like some people like me, the next gig isn't necessarily necessary. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, what was it like in 2005? Just uh, for the record, people know I started messing around with audio in 2008, but I started this podcast in 2009. So I was um, behind you. But what was it like in 2005? Yeah, not, not that far behind me. Uh, I mean, back in, um, well, first of all, prior to me doing podcasting in general, you know, there were people like Adam Curry and literally, you could probably count on, you know, there were there weren't that many podcasts. I was going to say you can count on your fingers and toes. There were probably a few more than that. But that said, uh, there really weren't a lot. Wired Magazine in February of 2005 wrote this great article about podcasting, and Adam Curry was a big focus of it. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, while I'm waiting for the, the next hosting radio job, maybe I could do a podcast and generate enough to audio to offer to program directors and say, hey, this is me interviewing. This is what I'm capable of. And I was at Sporting News Radio at the time. And um, I was covering uh, boxing for them and getting on the air a lot, talking about boxing. And it might have made sense at the moment to do a boxing podcast. But I just felt that would have been a conflict of interest because I was already getting paid for, for Sporting News. I mean, I was, I was making commercials primarily for them. But they knew about my boxing uh, writing background, and so they would use me on air, and they'd send me to big fights. The score did the same thing back in the '90s. Uh, so, you know, I, I, but again, I didn't want to do something similar to what I was already doing on the air. And I'm like, well, you know, at this time in 2005, uh, the Sin City movie was coming out, and um, Batman uh, Begins, the first Christopher Nolan movie. And I'm like, you know, comic books kind of finally seem to be hitting mainstream media in a way they hadn't pri prior to that. I mean, it was gradually getting that way with things like uh, the first Spider-Man movie that Sam Raimi did and the X-Men movies. But yeah, it just kind of seemed like, all right, things are getting bigger. And I knew more things were in the pipeline. So I decided to interview any uh, creative people. And I, and I mean, I, I leaned on these comic book writers and artists because again, the movies were being based on uh, the uh, the comics they made, even uh, Road to Perdition, that incredible Paul Newman, Tom Hanks movie, that was originally a graphic novel. And I knew how to get a hold of the author, the guy who created it. So I'm like, well, that's, you know, these are the people that created the original stories that are now being made into movies. Why not? So that's, that's kind of where I started. And um, for the first year, 
I posted just on my website, wordballoon.com. But by late summer of 2006, a listener of mine said, you know, your basic, I didn't think of it as a podcast. I was doing MP3s of recorded interviews. And had this listener of mine, it's like, you're basically doing a podcast. You know, um, iTunes is posting podcasts and you might get more listeners if you put your show there. And I was like, yeah, it's a good idea. So at that point, I'd already been doing it for like 15 months. So I, I uh, pointed my RSS feed to to iTunes and the and the show really started to expand and it was great. Well, what was the reaction of people around you back then? Um, they didn't understand it. They didn't know what it was. I would call it Internet radio. And, uh, you know, and, and I mean, there was enough um, small streaming media, both video and audio by then. This is about, you know, four years or so before YouTube really took off, like 2008, 2009. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, that's how I'd explain it. And of course, I was already currently working in radio. So, uh, so they, it wasn't that big of a transition. And also sp the Sporting News Radio Network was owned by Paul Allen, one of the Microsoft billionaires. So he was very much in tune with online media as much as he was traditional broadcasting. So we were, and again, I was doing it with boxing. We were posting video and audio features for sportingnews.com all the time. So, and I was telling my, my friends and family, you know, hey, I'm not only am I on the air, but you know, you can, you can, get me via the internet and stuff. So that, that was fine. But no, again, I would tell my friends, like hey, my radio friends, Hey, you got to do a podcast. And they're like, yeah, maybe. And you know, never do it and stuff. And then find themselves out of work and be like, yeah, tell me again about the podcast thing. It's like, all right, this is what you do. So. <laughs> now, I, boxing. What is the attraction of seeing people beat up each other and get bloody and everything? That is such a fair question. And it's kind of like, as we learn more and more, even about football, and how dangerous football is, and certainly boxing, they call it a blood sport. It is a blood sport. I have to say, again, I grew up with uh, Muhammad Ali's uh, 70s uh, years. So, I mean, I remember as a small kid when he first fought Joe Frazier, and it literally, the world did stop because boxing was that big. And, you know, they would even have major fights. Now they have major fights on Saturday night. It makes sense. People aren't working. They go to the bars, they watch it. This is when they were still having huge fights on Monday nights and even Thursday nights because it either extended a casino weekend or began a casino weekend. So that, that was why they had it then. And I remember the, the Ali Frazier first fight was on a Monday night. And I remember waking up Tuesday morning and my dad, I'm like, who won? You know, I couldn't wait to find out. I was a little kid, but I really was. And then of course um, the eighties, we had uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran, Tommy Hearns. In fact, Showtime has just put out a great four-part documentary about that 80s period called The Kings. So I just was a, a beneficiary of watching some incredible boxing. And really, it is so dramatic, one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, they're hit, they are they're hitting each other. And I, I don't want anyone hurt. And it, and it does, obviously, I'm a human being, and it upsets me when somebody does get too hurt. But uh, I, I can't deny that I appreciate the competition when it's right. And I'll even say, look, that Logan Paul, Floyd Mayweather thing was a farce. And if I was on sports radio, I would be telling people, do not buy this. This is a scam. It's not a scam in terms of because they, they like, you know, they're trying to pull something over on people because 
they said, hey, it's an exhibition, but it's like bad wrestling in terms of the hype for it. And I knew that there wasn't going to be a decision because unfortunately I got suckered into a more reasonable fight. And that was when Mike Tyson fought Roy Jones back in uh, December. And that was a, that, I mean, at least they were around the same age. They both were professional fighters with years of experience, but even then, pardon me, I knew watching Roy Jones. Are you talking about the recent thing that you were tweeting about? Probably. He was just so unprepared. Tyson took it seriously. It's, I mean, and I kept hearing in the interviews, Tyson's like, hey, I, 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 you don't play boxing. And that's the thing. I really think Floyd was playing boxing with Logan Paul and he was toying with him. And even and, and both in the case of Logan Paul and Roy Jones, they both ran out of gas before the exhibition was over. So why did they do it like that? For the money. I mean, it's again, it's just the novelty. I mean, and, and in fairness, Muhammad Ali fought uh, Antonio Aoki, who was this great Japanese wrestler back in the 70s. But that was on Wide World of Sports on ABC. And literally, you had Howard Costello going, all right, this is a fuss. Look at this ridiculous exhibition. And it was great. But these idiots now, and I, I can't blame them because like in the case of the Floyd Logan Paul fight, the promos- the promotional company is called Triller. Well, they want people to watch. So they're, and again, they're getting people to buy the thing. So they're treating it very seriously. DraftKings had a betting line. And I'm like, this is an exhibition. This is stupid. How dare you? I mean, honestly, that's where the FTC needs to step in and go, all right, this isn't a real competition. Don't make people waste their money. But Again, it's America, so if you want to be a sucker, I guess you can. But, you know, last night I saw some guys. It wasn't traditional boxing. It was mixed martial arts or something. Sure. Or mixed whatever. Yeah, yeah like the UFC. Guy, yeah. And the guy was on top of the other guy, and he was just beating his face. And I thought, what is the attraction of this? Well, that, and it's funny, Margaret, because honestly, in the 90s, when mixed martial arts was still not as unified as it became uh, in the 2000s, I would be on the score and I would get calls from mixed martial art fans and they'd be like, how come you don't talk about boxing? You talk a lot of, or about, you, you know, mixed martial arts. This is when Royce Gracie was a great MMA fighter, for example. And I'm like, because it's too brutal. You know, it's only legal at the time in the nineties. It was only legal in New Jersey and Nevada. And I'm assuming because of the casinos and uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm sorry. And I would make those same arguments. I'm like, like, you know, guys who get their arms broken and stuff. I'm like, boxing has rules. And yes, unfortunately, it can get so brutal. There can there can become literally fatal consequences. There have been hundreds, sadly, of deaths in the ring in the hundred plus years of mar- modern boxing. But that said, I can't deny the, that I appreciate it. And also, one of the reasons why I like it is it isn't no holds barred. You can do anything in the ring. There are rules. I mean, God, when Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield in the air, uh, it, it absolutely, I'm like, I'm never going to root for this guy again. And this was, I'm trying to remember, well, I guess it was, I mean, it was after the rape conviction. Uh, I won't deny that, but, um, but, I, but I liked Mike Tyson as an athlete. I know, a terrible, terrible person. But, uh, and, and, you know, seriously, we're a forgiving society. And, and I think Mike has apologized. He did his time. Uh, there haven't been instances since he was a young man that really didn't have uh, good values growing up. 
again, not excuses, just an explanation of, I think what happened. Um, but yeah, when he bit him in the air, I'm like, Oh, F you, you know, I'm like, I'm done. Uh, that's the, I'm, and especially given how much Tyson was a student of the game. It's like, look, you don't do that. I'm sorry. That's just, that is so above, you know, below, uh, the line in terms of, uh, you know, just poor, uh, execution of your skills. And it's just like, man, that just shows how cheap and crappy you are. If you have to resort to, to that because Evander Holyfield is beating you again, it was in the second fight anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you're saying that you did, when you were started podcasting, you were doing it about boxing and comics or what was going well, on? Well, when I was at sporting news radio, I was doing online features for boxing and I was on the radio. So what I didn't want to do with the podcast was uh, cover boxing on my own because I was doing it for Sporting News at the time. It was ironic, though, because I started the podcast in, like I said, May of 2005. And uh, at the end of November 2005, that's when I got let go from Sporting News. And it was weird because I was out of radio for like a year and a half and uh, doing what I could to earn money. But I was having the greatest time because I, I started doing the podcast and it was so gratifying. And I wasn't making money then. I didn't even try to get sponsors until about two years into it, 2007 or so, because I didn't feel I had a big enough audience to justify it. But once I started with a core of around uh, 1,500 to 2,000 consistent listeners a month, then I, and you know, I'd go after uh, sponsors. And it was it was nothing. It would literally it was like fifty bucks a month, something like that. Just a nice side side income. And then, what do you think about like fast forward many years? But so back then, not a lot of people were doing it. I remember those days. Sure. And then now everybody does it. So what do you think <laughs> of the amount of people who are doing it now? The amount of podcasts out there. Well, I mean, there are good professional sounding podcasts, and there are lousy podcasts. And I always say the best and worst thing about podcasting is anyone can do it. And I mean that on both ends of the spectrum, because like I said, it is an opportunity for professionals to show they can still do it and not be, uh, you know, uh, held back because they haven't found a great uh, opportunity from a terrestrial broadcaster. But then by the same token, you got Jimmy's podcast. And I, I mean, I had lunch today and this is what I ate, you know, and it's like, yeah, it gives a damn, you know, and I mean, honestly, even more so in, uh, I think the nerd uh, culture, uh, there are anyone can do it. And um, I, I sometimes I'm really surprised at like the uh, delusions of grandeur that some of these people have. And I remember one show that ended a year or so after it started and I was listening to them and they're like, I swear, I thought by now we'd be talking to Stan Lee. This was several years ago. <laughs> and I'm like, get over yourself, man. I'm like, you know, and again, I I'm very Johnny Appleseed in terms of the guests I got one, one at a time and also the listeners I got. And I saw growth and that's why I stuck with it. And also very luckily and very early on, I connected with uh, writers that were and artists that were big uh, in the nerd culture, like my buddy Robert Kirkman, who created Walking Dead, and a couple uh, big people won't know their names, but uh, big writers and artists for the two big companies, DC and Marvel. So the Superman, Batman universe and the uh, Iron Man. Uh, well, certainly everybody knows Marvel. Isn't it interesting? I, I That honestly... I knew, I mean, again, back in 1998, they started making Marvel movies. Blade with Wesley Snipes was the first one. 
And there had been superhero movies in the 90s, obviously, and 80s. And, you know, hell, going back to even, you know, Adam West and Burr Ward in the 60s with uh, the Batman TV show, but they made a movie as well. Um, but I really, uh, the, the growth of Marvel, the wide acceptance of Marvel, that it is universal, that baby Groot is a toy that kids really want. And I was the guy in 2013 talking to the people at Marvel and they're like, we're doing guardians of the galaxy next. And I'm like, why? Because, because they what they weren't big heroes. And I'm like, Oh, you know, Jesus, there's so many other Avengers you guys haven't even like done yet. Why? You know? And they're like, it's going to be great. Trust us. And I'm like, well, you haven't been wrong so far. And that, and I, the, that was a big, exciting moment. And also uh, the second Captain America movie, the winter soldier, when they said, think three days of the condor with Captain America. And I'm like, that is amazing. And that's exactly what we got. And it also started to show beyond the obvious of superhero movies. You could do a, you could do a spy movie, uh, Ant-Man. The first, the first Ant-Man movie is a heist movie. Um, you know, they, they could do, and then even in the second movie, it was a heist movie. Deadpool was a massive game changer because it could be a smart ass, uh, fun comedy action movie. And, and it just shows that um, the superhero genre, it really is a shell in the same way that the Western is or any genre fiction. And you could put any kind of story in there. You can put romance in there. You can put mystery in there. You name it, horror. Uh, New Mutants is kind of a horror movie in a lot of ways. And, and yeah, and, and they're, they're finding great success. It's, it's really, really amazing. Yeah, so if people are finding great success, then why is it still considered nerd culture? Oh, I, you know, I think that's fine. I mean, it's it, they call it nerd culture because we are we're geeks. I mean, you know, again, I mean, we're we we're very passionate about the TV and film that we love, and uh, we don't like it when the Star Wars sequels uh, we feel you know they kind of abandon what made the original movies great. That uh, the decisions in terms of movie execution on all fronts are feeling very corporately minded and. They want us to give us tropes of, ooh, remember Chewbacca? Remember the Millennium Falcon? Well, they're in these movies. Ooh. And it's like, yeah, that's great, but how's the story? Give us a good story. And I mean, and that's what the nerds keep yelling about. God, uh, they dropped the new uh, <laughs> Star Trek Picard uh, trailer for season two. And I love Patrick Stewart. And I love uh, Jean-Luc Picard. He's a great character. I was really disappointed by that first season. Why? And, and, well, because again, it was tropes rather than story. And the story didn't make sense. The other thing is, and it's fascinating, and, and honestly, I love doing what I do because, you know, I, I get to you know, examine the comics, but obviously, obviously the TV and film spheres as well. And it's very interesting that we're in this one story a season for a lot of shows and especially in genre fiction. Well, that could be good and it could be bad because if you don't have a great premise, you're putting all your eggs in one basket and we're like, okay, great. We had 13 chapters of a lousy story. And I really feel like new Star Trek, especially the streaming televisions, have been massively disappointing because, again, it's all about tropes. Ooh, she's Spock's brother. Ooh, well, Spock doesn't have a sister, but okay. Or she's Spock's sister. Uh, you know, it's like, come on. I'm like, you know, if these characters can't stand on their own, Jean-Luc Picard was not, Patrick, was not James Kirk's grandson. He didn't need it. 
It's new characters. And, and again, they've got new characters, but they just don't have, they need to put in all these tropes to ensure that they have our attention. And that's what we're getting, I think, in this second season of- But how would you define uh, a trope in this case? Something you expect. Like I was saying about uh, like Star Wars. Hey, we got Chewbacca. Ooh, hey, this is this uh, new, uh, God, I can't even remember what, oh, Kylo Ren. Um, what's Adam, uh, what's his face is Adam Driver's uh, character. It kind of looks like Darth Vader, doesn't it? Ooh, and there's the spirit of Darth Vader. There's the burnt out helmet. Now I won't deny we're all suckers for that. Cause it is like, Oh my God, I want another story behind that or whatever. Um, and uh, you know, again, they're totems without actually providing good story. Like, like again, They've invented in Star Trek, and and I know this is uh, I have nothing against Sunita Mark Martin Green, the the actor, or any of the actors on any of the new shows because they're only as good as the material they're given. But um, yeah, she's got to be Spock's sister. Well, f you, there was no Spock's sister. I you know it's like and and now they've literally like it's like fitting a size eight sh- uh, foot into a size four shoe. But remember with the Star Trek cramming movies, it in there. Remember what? the Star Trek the Star Trek movies is completely rebooted, so they're doing a similar thing, maybe. Well, you, I, I guess you can argue that. Um, I, I, you know, and you're right because I mean they introduced uh, Spock's brother in Star Trek Five. Uh, Lawrence Luckabill played Cybok and all that. But they even like in the movie, Shatner's like, "You're lying." I've known you all this time, and you never said you have a brother. Well, you're right. Technically, he's not my brother. He's my half brother. And and then Shatner's like, I gotta sit down. And, and that's the, literally how we all felt. Re- <laughs> I'm talking about the more recent ones, JJ oh, Abrams. Yeah. Oh sure, two thousand. Well, and I'll be honest. Yeah, you're right. They did. They did totally reboot. But that's that's a different universe. And again, the mistake that CBS made with Discovery was they said, Oh no, no, it's not in the JJ Abrams universe. This is Leonard Nimoy's sister. Like it's not Zachary Quinto as Spock's sister. This and because I think we all would have been a little more forgiving if it was part of the JJ stuff, but it wasn't. So that's why it's like, well, you guys are the jerks that declared to ensure that we would be interested. Hey, this is in the original Shatner Nimoy universe. So pay attention to this. And we're like, all right, fine. And it's 10 years before. Kirk and Spock get together on the classic uh, TV show. So we like, okay, well, that's around the time of the original pilot uh, t- in the in the fictional timeline of Star Trek. They said that was nine years before uh, Shatner and Nimoy. So it's like, all right, it's in that era. Ooh, maybe we'll see Captain Pike, the first uh, captain of the Enterprise. So it's like, okay, they're smart. They gave us like little breadcrumbs to follow. But again, it's like, she is so uh, superior to Spock. Spock wouldn't be the man he was if it wasn't his sister. And it's like, all you're doing is diminishing this amazing character that is responsible for the popularity of your entire franchise because, hey, here's a woman. And listen, I am so for women-focused shows and geek-oriented stuff going. I mean, Alias to me was a revelation. When Jennifer Garner was doing her spy show, Alias, I'm like, wow, I am really excited about this female-led spy show in a way that I've been equally excited about male-led spy shows. So I won't deny being a caveman back in the day, but I'm, I'm cool with, uh, you know, God, Catherine Janeway on uh, Voyager and, uh, and all the strong women that were on Star Trek Voyager. Um, so it wasn't that, it really was 
well, we're interesting that we're introducing this female character, but and again, um, I don't think they think they were doing it, but to the to a lot of fans, they were kind of you know, diminishing Spock's impact on his own, and it's like. Uh, I'm sorry, we disagree. There's been 50 years of storytelling, and now you're telling us Spock wasn't the man he was without this uh, guidance from his sister. It's it's the worst kind of fan fiction, frankly. I mean, there's that term, I don't know if you know it, Mary Sue? No. Mary Sue is this, when fan fiction was happening in the 70s, there was, and I don't remember the woman specifically, but there was a woman, and maybe her name really was Mary Sue, but she created this, she did this piece of fan fiction about Star Trek, and it was this new character that she's invented, saves the day, is smarter than all the rest of the cast, and it's just hack writing. It's really hacky writing. And unfortunately, somewhere along the line, uh, the, the line between Mary Sue kind of writing and professional writing has blurred, and now all of a sudden, uh, you're, and especially in the case of Star Trek, you could say that in a minor way about Ray especially the way it's discovered who she's Palpatine's granddaughter. Ooh. Do you think this came from fan fiction? Do you think they were looking at all this stuff and they came up with that idea? Yeah, I do. Or are they, and again, well, again, they are trying, the corporate heads are sitting in an office going, okay, here's a whiteboard. What do people like about Star Wars? Well, they like the Millennium Falcon. All right, that's gotta be in there. They like Chewbacca. All right, he's gotta be in there. Uh, you know, whatever, you know, we need Jedis, we need lightsabers, we need whatever. And they've got a, a, a grocery list of, of tropes, but what's missing is a good story. And God, uh, after the third movie came out and it was publicly admitted by J.J. Abrams, by, uh, I think it's Ryan Hughes who did the second one, but J.J. did the first and third ones. And he's like, no, we didn't have a battle plan. We didn't have, we didn't have a story plan of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, the Marvel universe is very tightly regimented to the point where some directors have walked off movies mid-production because it's like, no, the story needs to go this way. We appreciate your ideas, but it has to be this way. And some directors like, well, I can't work that way. And it's like, great, no hard feelings. That happened on the Ant-Man movie. Edgar Wright, the fantastic director who did movies like Shaun of the Dead, uh, he was going to do the Ant-Man movie. And ultimately, and it was no hard feelings. You know, we understand Edward Norton from an acting standpoint. And because as a uh, as an actor, I think for a lot of his movies, he gets to be an active producer and has uh, things he can do script-wise and things and make changes. Uh, he only made the one Hulk movie because, again, his ideas didn't jive with um, what, the Marvel people wanted to but, do. But when you say your when you say your strong opinions, does it make people? Well, my question should be: Are you afraid to say your strong opinions because you're afraid you're going to upset some of your friends in the business? No, no, I'm not. I mean, I, I you know, uh, thankfully, having done radio for 30 years and interviewing people, I, I, I try to find the most polite way of saying I disagree with what you did. Um, and, and it, luckily it doesn't come up that much. Cause also I don't do reviews on my show, but, but I will, it like, it's funny, actually three people that I do know well are involved with star Trek. Their shows haven't come out yet. One friend is on the Picard season two staff. So again, as much as I'm like, uh, I had my issues with the trailer, I'm willing to 
I'm always willing to watch it regardless. But also there's an animated Star Trek that's going to be on Nickelodeon. And two of my best friends in uh, in media are are two writers. They're, they're actually sisters from uh, Central Illinois. And um, and so I'm really rooting for them. They, because of non-disclosure agreements, can you know are not able to tell me what they did in specifics. So I, but I am optimistic, and I remain optimistic about everything. As as much as I get bummed about Star Trek, I'm like, well, maybe I'll like. Literally, it's all right. Well, maybe I'll like next week's episode better. But you're and, saying your opinions now. So do you think anybody's going to be upset by what you're saying? No, no. Then also, well, Margaret, as you know, uh, you can have a disagreeing opinion about something. And uh, honestly, that gets more flies. I mean, if I, if I were really smart and crass, my show would be a very negative show. This is why this sucks. This is why that sucks. I don't do that. I, I'm a legitimate fan, and I believe I mostly project a positive uh, attitude. But I won't deny that when it comes to Star Trek, I've, I've been very fortunate. I haven't had to interview anybody involved with the new Star Trek. If the opportunity came... I would be very careful with my interview. I would not be, you know, why you suck or you know why your show sucks. I um, there was I won't name them, but there was a, a sports uh, talk host that uh, came to uh, work at um, the score for a guest week, guest hosting, and he was really a bear to the producers and yelling all over the place. And our promo- our program director at the time, Jeff Schwartz, um, is, talked to the guy and said, you know dude i won't say his name uh we really appreciate you being here but you're a guest host this week and the operative word is guest the people you're yelling at they work here every day and by the way despite your disagreements and and problems with them they're going to be here next week when you're not here so it's okay to ask for things just be a little nicer and i feel that way as a host and it's like well i'm 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 asking these people to like be in my virtual living room and sit down with me and have a conversation. I'm not going to be a jerk to them and tell them why they suck. But it's been interesting. And early on, I would have comic book writers on who were involved in a big event comic that would be uh, not only in their own magazine, but also in others. And it's a big connected story. Um, And if the event didn't work, especially early on, I'm like, what happened here? Why don't you think it worked? Because the, the fans are very vocal and vicious. I mean, we all know how uh, vicious the internet is in terms of telling uh, things that they don't like. And there's a very healthy Star Trek and Star Wars community that are very against uh, what's being made. In fact, literally about an hour before we were talking, I was listening to a show and they were bitching about the uh, Picard uh, trailer and, and, and their dissatisfaction with new Star Trek. So, but I, but I did want to like, again, I'm like, what do you think happened? And one guy is a really good friend. And I really felt like I just like spanked him because he just was. So, you know, I thought I was telling a good story. It kind of got out of control, um, but it's my fault. You know, it's it, my name's on the story. And I felt so bad for the guy. And I'm like, all right, you just got to be really careful. And, uh, you know, yeah, be careful with your words. And, and I mean, it's OK to ask about something that didn't work out, but don't be a jerk to the person who, I mean, really, at the end of the day, including all the people that have complained about regarding Star Wars and uh, new Star Trek, 
I always say, I'm sure in their head, we thought we were writing a great story at the time. We liked what we were doing. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And if you are in the Writers Guild of America, check your email for a link to a free webinar where I'll be giving tips for podcasting. And that is happening next Tuesday. And if you read fiction, go to wickerparkwishes.com to find out about and order my debut novel, Wicker Park Wishes, published by Eckhart's Press. Well, I feel like a Star Trek, I'm a Star Trek fan. I feel like Star Trek jumped the gun or jumped the shark, whatever it's called, when they came out with Enterprise. They really ruined it for me. Well, and, and you know, it sucks because uh, a lot of that was network interference. Uh, the creators of the show wanted Enterprise to be earthbound in its first year and that for them not to be in space, that they're building the ship. But you're also learning about the earth and the rest of the planet's politics, which I think would have been a lot better. But I know that uh, UPN, the network at the time, uh, Next Generation was so successful, ridiculously successful, that they really wanted every uh, subsequent show to be a clone of Next Generation. Yeah, but it wasn't, it got away from it. It became like, I call it friends in space. (laughs) <laughs> they, they got rid they got rid of there was no excitement they got rid of the nerdiness of it they tried to make it like tna in parts some of yes. the actors i won't yes. name any names but some of the actors were horrible and they were like mean girls or something i just thought <laughs> and also it's very hard to play a vulcan okay only i've only seen two people do it well i thought spock, Joey, uh, go ahead yeah that, spock was good and tim russ as uh Tuvok, yeah Yep, those guys ace it. That's I, it. I did think Jolene Blaylock did fine with, and again, she uh, she's a beautiful woman. They absolutely exploited that. Uh, they were coming off of Jerry Ryan on Voyager, and she was obviously cast to be, and, and certainly in both cases, their uniforms were very form-fitting. So, but Jerry Ryan's a great actress. She really captured I complete Yes, I agree. And also... God, the pressure she was under on that show. Uh, Kate Mulgrew was not happy about her being cast and had so many scenes with her. They really tried to, uh, you know, do a Kirk Spock relationship with them and, and also a mentor mentee. And uh, that had, I can't imagine the knots in her stomach going to work every day. Well, she, she talked about that too. Yeah. Yes. But the thing is, there, but you couldn't tell by the acting because they're no. such good actors. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I agree. Plus, again, because she was such a beautiful woman. She was like stalked heavily. And that's really, yeah. By fans? Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and again, it's like, oh my God, I, 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 I totally understand. And that, what, a, what a terrible thing. You know, she was married, another Chicago connection. Jerry Ryan was married to uh, the, the politician, Jack Ryan. Right. And actually my, my sister and my former brother-in-law uh, were friends with Jack and, uh, and Jerry. And then that stuff came out in the uh, Tribune or wherever that reported about yeah. Yeah. About their relationship. No, it's, I mean, and yeah, that's why. And also, by the way, I do like what new Star Trek has done with seven of nine and Jerry Ryan's character. All of that is very, and that was all in the first season of Picard. And I thought all of that was very interesting. I mean, that's the thing. There are moments, hell, there are moments in the Star Treks or the Star Wars sequels as much as I was disappointed by them in general. The same thing goes with new Star Trek. They have their moments. I love Rain Wilson is on uh, Star Trek Discovery, another uh, former alum that I that I uh, uh, was in high school with and stuff. And I think he's doing great. It's funny, before we were talking, we were talking about Liz Fair. 
uh, off the air and stuff. And yeah, she, I was very lucky being at uh, new Trier high school. There were a lot of, a lot of very good uh, actors that aren't huge names, but very significant actors in terms. You don't of- see the new tour, uh, like the new tour stereotype at all. Ha! I'm not. I'm not. I I, w- I always you know um, I have a lot of friends that um, come from wealthy families. They lived in Kenilworth. They lived in Glencoe, uh, right on right on the lake. Beautiful homes. Great parents. Um, and uh, being I'm Greek, as you know but for the audience. And uh, we always, me and a a friend of mine who was um, Czechoslovakian, she and I always say we were the swarthy, like (laughs) Eastern You're more like Lane Tech to me. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you seem more like a city guy. Well, I was was raised by city people. I mean, I was in Wilmette, you know, that is where I grew up, but um, I, I, yeah, I was, uh, my, my mom and dad were city people. And, you know, no, it was like, uh, hey, uh, yeah, we're not paying your allowance anymore. We know you're 14. Get a job <laughs> at 14. And it's right. like, all right. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, okay, what you're saying about the Star Trek and Star Wars about yeah. um, these characters, it reminds me of Hello Kitty when they came out recently or let's say a couple of years ago and they said, she's a girl. I'm like, what? You never oh, the said kitty, she's a girl. The kitty's a girl? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. yeah it that's just, interesting. Uh, I'm surprised. I'm sure. I'm sure your fans that maybe discuss it in some corner of the universe. But I was like, why did you do that to us? She's a kitty. She's called Hello Kitty. Right. Right. It could be. Could be boy. Could be girl. No, I'm with you, man. God, have you seen in another great geek culture? Thing? No, but they said literally she's a girl, not even a kitty. Oh. Yeah. All right. Whatever. Okay. Uh, again, it's like yeah. I don't know what to tell you. I was going to say that regarding Hello Kitty on netflix there's that incredible show i don't know when we were working together at bbm if you and i ever discussed it but it's called the toys that made us and there are many documentaries about all these various toys the hello kitty episode is incredibly interesting all of them are and the the biggest surprise to me beyond hello kitty was barbie barbie is such a cutthroat behind the scenes story of the creation of barbie and how mattel kind of screwed over the original creators and how they wanted to fight back very very interesting and then of course the whole uh you know uh body issues that barbie represents over the years it's it is so good and uh, i've even i've gotten to uh, interview the guy who created the series brian voke weiss and he's a fascinating guy i mean again that's that's been the great thing about the podcast is it actually opened more doors of interview opportunities than um i i expected and like I said, the initial thought was, well, maybe this will get me a new radio job or even maybe a TV job. And instead, it's become its own thing. And I'm so glad that I had uh, the right idea back. You know, I won't even call it foresight because, again, my expectation was very different than what's developed over these last 16 years. Yeah, but in the early days, was it hard to get interviews because were they like, what's no. a podcast? Okay, why is that? Because I would explain what a podcast was. I'd refer to it as internet radio. Uh, luckily had already worked at CBS in a sports capacity. So I would say all that, Hey, I've been a Chicago broadcaster for 15 years at the time. Uh, I worked at C, you know, Chicago for the CBS uh, stations. And so there was obviously cachet saying CBS. So everybody knew that. And again, thankfully by then I was comfortable with my interview style so that once they did come on, they were like, Oh, well, this was very competent. And it wasn't Jimmy's podcast uh, where, you know, uh, well, who do you think would win a fight, Thor or the Hulk? You know, I, I don't care. But <laughs> I, I noticed that, I ask. But yeah. I noticed that as podcasting became more common, um, yeah. it was harder for me to get interviews. 
Because now well, they're like, true. oh, whatever. There are people, either they do not respond to me even now, or they blow me off or something. And earlier in the days, they're like, what is this? What are you doing? Right. And I would explain, it like, went, oh, okay. It went from what is this to, okay, you're, you know, one of thousands, literally. Um, and I understand that. Um, I've always gotten great advice. And one thing I would suggest in terms of, uh, you know, obviously when you, when you send a cover letter to say I've interviewed such people as, and the biggest names that you've had. I mean, again, I, I interviewed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I think in 2018 or 17. So it's three or four years later. And in a lot of in introductory letters, I will mention Kareem. I will mention Robert Kirkman, uh, people like that so that they know, oh, these are big people. My friend Joe Henderson, who is the co-showrunner of the Netflix show Lucifer. Um, and also a, a good tip that I got from uh, a, a very uh, experienced podcaster was not only mention these names, but put the logos of the companies they represent. So for Kareem, my cover letter now includes an NBA logo when I'm talking about Kareem or Netflix, when I'm talking about Joe Henderson or AMC, when I'm talking about Robert Kirkman. So they recognize these networks. And also I have the very fortunate situation because I've been doing it for 16 years that a lot of people in publishing in general and even in uh, media are starting to come to me and saying, Hey, do you want to talk to this star from for all mankind, the astronaut show that's on Apple plus. And it's like, yes, I do. Uh, you know, so it's, it's been very nice. And in fact, I did an interview last night with a comic book artist and he's with a new publisher and the publicist told him, cause he wasn't aware of my show. Uh, but he's, she's like, we're going to be on word balloon. Word balloon's like really one of the bigger comic book podcasts. And I'm like, Oh, that's good to hear. Thank that's you. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How, how did you get all your fans though? One at a time. Uh, I would go at, you know, especially in the message board years, this is pre Facebook, pre-MySpace. MySpace was an, a new thing, but I had already been established for a couple of years when they came along. But a lot of um, comic creators to start with had their own fan message boards on their websites where they would interact with their audience. So I would go to uh, one of my friends' webs, now one of my good friends, and say, hey, you like Brian Bendis? Well, I just did this interview. Here's the link. And I would post that on the message board. And people would come and they, when they'd come, they'd also see that I was talking to other uh, comic book creators. So they would listen to those. And again, they, they would be, you know, oh, he, he does this every week. All right, I'm going to come back. So, so that's literally what happened. And then as I get big name people like Joe Henderson, uh, Joe was on Brian, uh, ironically, Joe was on Brian Bendis's message board when he was just breaking into TV writing. So we each knew each other just as mutual fans of Brian's. And then all of a sudden he's like, hey, man, uh, I'm writing on USA Network and I'm writing for this show called White Collar. I don't know if you know it. Well, I loved White Collar. That was a great show. I'm like, yeah, man, come on the show. And ever since then, his career has just gotten bigger and bigger. And five or six years ago, he was offered the show running job for Lucifer, which is based on a, a comic book, even though it's the devil solving crimes in uh, Los Angeles. That's the basic premise. Um, and uh, I'm like, yeah, man, this is great. Well, he's internationally huge. Lucifer is such a big deal in other countries as well as the U.S. And uh, man, I'll tell you, we've talked four times during the COVID. And every time I've gotten massive responses like uh, to, pr to preview the most recent uh, season of Lucifer that dropped over Memorial Day weekend, 
I had over 20,000 uh, views of our YouTube uh, interview wow. in addition to the audio interview. And I know I picked up literally at least a thousand new listeners and viewers because I was talking to Joe about Lucifer and now they're, they're regulars and they, they show up. But how come that's, and I've, I've noticed that in some cases, um, some people they move on and then they become snotty and they just act like they don't know me or something. Okay. Sure, and sure. do these, has that happened to you? I'm thinking. Um, or how does it not happen? Well, no, it's happened. It's, and again, I mean, I, I kind of chalked that up to those individuals who, yeah, unfortunately, they don't remember where they came from. Uh, and it's funny because some of them aren't necessarily the biggest names in uh, comics or it hasn't happened yet with movies or TV. And, and it's funny, uh, Scott Porter was the quarterback on Friday Night Lights. Great show. And um, we have a mutual screenwriting friend who approached me and said, Scott is a massive comic book guy, loves your show, wants to be on your show. Okay, great. His PR people were like, why are you even like talking to this rinky dink podcast? We're setting up interviews with CNN and USA Today and all these major media things. And um, I kept getting blown off by his PR people. And finally, I told our mutual friend, hey, let Scott know if he really wants to do this. He's got to step up and tell his PR people to back off. And he did, which shocked the hell out of me, but it was great. And he's like, John, I'm so sorry. You know, that's people that don't get nerd culture. I'm like, it's all good. Don't sweat it. I never held you, you know, responsible. In that case, he literally is the only person that was big timing me. That, you know, but but again, it, it wasn't him. It was his people. And that was great. And honestly, I I have so many great little moral victories where a publisher even years years ago, one of the major publishers, I won't say which one, but it's one of the big two, was very stiff to me. And I would get these great relationships with their writers and artists in spite of the publisher being stiff. And literally, it took several different uh, leaders of their marketing department before they finally now are in a good place with me. And in fact, at the beginning of COVID, the current guy was like, okay, I know you know most of our roster. Who haven't you been able to get to that we can help you get? Whoa. And yeah, that's a massive change from 12 or 13 years ago when they were, it's like David Spade used to be on SNL when he's the guy, the gatekeeper at the front of the, you know, build of the club. And you are, and this is, and what are you doing here? And yeah, it's like, you know, now it's, no, they, I'm, I'm very happy to say the big two, recognizes that I am only trying to promote their products. And also, God, I, I've gotten many listeners say on social media, I've ne I never would have read X book had he not had that person not been on your show, man or woman. And, uh, and that's great. And I always retweet that. And I always put at the top of the retweet, the system works. And I say that on, on, on Facebook as well, because it's true. It's like, hey, uh, do you want to sell books? Well, for whatever reason, when they're on my show, books are sold. You might want, your people may want to talk to me. And I'm never ready to get that lousy with somebody. I'm trying to be careful and not swear, Margaret. But, uh, you know, I, I um, yeah, I mean, but I won't deny that. Uh, I mean, there was a, a, a time of frustration of no 
like, don't you know who I am? I never feel that way. I, I expect people don't know who I am. And it's always delightful that, oh, no, I know who you are when it happens. But as often it happens that they, they don't know who I am. Because, again, like we said earlier, there are so many podcasts out there. Why would they if they if they haven't had direct contact with me? But it's it's really great and very gratifying that, no, I am at a point now where, in the case of Scott or other writers or artists, they'll go back to their um, – management or whatever and say no i want to talk to him he knows what he's doing so we were talking about nerd culture how do you define a nerd well you could be nerdy i mean there you know there are people that are fascinated by shoes and they're like i'm a shoe nerd or whatever someone that is um so compulsively into something isn't that geek what's the difference sure same thing same thing same thing geek culture nerd culture i i I think they're exchangeable okay so why are you so into this I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I like the stories. I mean, um, you know, in comic books, there is a almost base baseball card sort of collectability of having first issues or significant issues is the first time Wolverine ever appeared anywhere. He was a uh, bad guy in a Hulk issue, for example, wasn't in his That's own. Nerdy. Yeah. Yeah. And I know all that crap, but I, uh, <laughs> but I really, I don't, I don't read comics to collect them and make money uh, there was that period in the 90s where comics were so collectible. People literally were like, oh, I can put myself through college with my comic book collection. Never felt that way. Never never really operated that way. I like the stories. I am entertained by the stories. Uh, a lot of people are right when they say uh, superhero things are really like kind of immature power fantasies for, for immature boys. And it's like, well, I still like them. But I also like the fact that uh, comics as a medium has grown and we are getting more sophisticated stories that have nothing to do with superheroes. So I, I consider superheroes to be like meat and potatoes. And, you know, yes, I've seen uh, the trick, you know, the way they write a story, I've seen it done a million times, but if something's good, I still like it. And that said, I also appreciate where comics have gone and we're getting very personal stories, uh, that are as personal as novels. Every genre that is covered in prose is covered in comics. Uh, the Japanese have done it for decades, but thankfully, I would say in the last 30 years, uh, the comic book medium has wised up. And very slowly, because of the exploitation through film and television, more people are becoming aware and they don't realize, like I said, Road to Perdition, great movie. And you say, yeah, you know, there's a graphic novel series that takes the story further. I had no idea, you know, and I really like walking dead was like that first real big, like, Oh, you mean there are more stories and uh, they're in this comic book stuff. And God, Robert really made a pile of money on his graphic novels alongside his television money. So, I mean, he's, he really is like the biggest success story in comics of the last uh, 20 years. But why did before this whole explosion though, which is similar to the Japanese culture that's been doing it for a while. Um, why do you think that people stuck with it beyond childhood? Uh, you, you know, look at the fact that people in as adults still dress up for Halloween. It's those kinds of people that I, this is fun and I enjoy doing this. And yeah, I'm, I'm an adult now. Who cares? I still like doing it. And it's funny because when I was at Sporting News Radio, uh, my my immediate manager of my department was also a big comic book creator. So the day that new comic books would come out, I'd come in. I was working uh, late afternoon till midnight. That was before to midnight was my shift. So I'd come in and I'd go to the comic store before coming into work. 
And um, he's like, what'd you get? And we'd go through our books. But there were a couple of people that worked at the radio station that were frankly immature. And I'm like, oh, you're into your little comic books, whatever. And I was like 40 at the time. And I'm like, yeah, guess what? I like what I like. Um, I, I, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm so sorry that you're so insecure. I mean, it really is that like after you reach a level of maturity where you can go to a bully and just talk him down and be like, yeah, aren't you a pathetic thing? Because you think it's funny by demeaning what I like. Who cares what I like? Who cares what you like? And he really later that day apologized to me and said, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. And I'm like, whatever. Because I wasn't going to let him I wasn't going to let him get off the hook. It's like I heard what you said. And okay, fine. I'm glad you understand. But you're still a jerk. So F you. Yeah. Well, see, but yeah, it's sort of like in the sports thing, because sometimes I talk to people, okay, I love baseball, but I'm not going to sit around and talk about people's stats, okay? But sometimes I'll say something that's sort of clueless, and they'll be like, no, blah, blah, blah. Well, there's that great line in Rocky Balboa, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm a boxing, obviously a boxing nerd as well. It's a great uh, movie. Yeah, and at the, uh, near the end of the fight, his son is in his corner, and he's like, hey, Everybody thought this was a joke. Nobody's laughing anymore. And that's that's true about nerd and geek culture because the Marvel movies are the most successful franchise in Hollywood history. Wow. Hollywood history. So that's not just, hey, they beat Star Wars. Hey, they beat... No, they beat everything. They have made billions of dollars. This and now all the really stars funny. are going to Comic-Con. Now Comic-Con is huge. They used to be like, oh, those weirdos over there. Now they're, yes. they want to get a place. Yes. Well, and also the amount of coverage that Comic-Con gets by the major news companies because they are announcing television and film and, and the comics themselves are further down the list. They might not even be covered by the big news venues, but they're there. And I can guarantee you that because I, when I'm there, they're there. They're also there. And, and that's great. And again, that's why it's like, nobody's laughing anymore. God, when I was working at um, the drive, at uh, in downtown Chicago, and the secretaries would literally come to me and say, "All right, me and my kid have been watching The Flash. Explain Professor Zoom to me." And I'm like, "Sit down." Cool. <laughs> One of the characters, but that's that's really what happened. And again, um, these shows are successful, and also it's a great way to bond with your kids. So some of these new adults that find it. They're like, oh, my God, I had no idea. This is a lot of fun. And it's like, yes, it is, because they're being written by uh, people who care about the characters. They're being acted by people who care about the characters. And uh, we're getting good story. That's what it always boils down to is a good story. And that's that's what's kept me entertained. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, so that whether it's a comic book or television adaptations or original ideas that are, uh, you know, based on comic book tropes and, uh, you know, basic ideas and heroes and whatever. I'm still interested if it's a good story. So in the, in the many years that you've done your podcast since you started and then now, do you feel like you're a part of the growth of the comic world? Oh, I, I don't think uh, my contribution, uh, I think it's happened alongside my growth. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm an observer. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist with a small J. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I always say that I, I, well, cause really it's like, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's effing comic books. You know I mean? It's cause a lot of times I'll talk to somebody and they'll accidentally reveal a plot point that's coming up and like, Oh, can you edit that out? I, I really shouldn't have said that. I'm like, 
It's effing comic books. Of course I can edit it out. I'm not here to screw up your job, whatever. So no, I'm just, I'm just a, an observer reacting to what's happening. The good news is it's growing. It's evolving. Uh, like I said, uh, it is a great container for so many ideas and genres within that you can tell within a comic book, you know, box. And like I said, you can tell a heist movie, you can tell a romance movie or whatever. So that's great. And really Hollywood is just still discovering that. There was a point in 2013 when a handful of films didn't perform well. Scott Pilgrim versus the world, uh, the Wolf, the second Wolverine solo movie, one of the first Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. And people are like, oh, is that it for comic book movies? And I'm like, no, it's just these weren't that good. And, you know, I'm like, I really think now, especially 20 plus years after the X-Men movies and the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, I think the genre is bulletproof. There, there may be less for a while, but it's kind of like the Western where it's going to be like, yeah, might, there might be less, but it's not going to go away. What do you think of the video aspect now of podcasting? Um, I'm for it. I mean, I, I think that's great. And, um, you know, I mean, I even am an, a late ad, uh, adopter as far as uh, that goes, because um, I really was just focusing on audio for years. But when COVID hit, I was like, you know, I could do video. And especially, I mean, I got downsized out of my, my, my radio gig. I'm like, well, I got free time and I've got the equipment. Um, and, I, you know, I'm like, why don't I do both? And also this way I could involve uh, live audiences watching on YouTube or Facebook or whatever with questions in a way that just doing audio, you know, I I'm, I'm a, I'm a disorganized guy. I mean, every now and then I'd be like, Oh yeah, send me your questions for Brian Bendis. And I'd get like, you know, 50 or 60 questions. I knew I couldn't get through all of them. So now it's like, all right, if you really want to ask a question, you'll tune in live and uh, there's your opportunity to ask questions. Otherwise, listen to the conversation. And thankfully um, the video surprisingly has grown its own audience independent of the audio audience. And, um, and also I still can kind of control what questions are asked. I roll my eyes at the, you know, what, what, what uh, characters haven't you written that you want to, I'm like, right. you know, that's just like so easy. And it's like, you know, ask them that at your next convention. I'm not going to waste my video time asking that question so i mean i can still be a jerk when it, when it comes to stuff like that well you are no, you are no. sort of the gatekeeper in a way but right. what i noticed is during covid um you'd have these live streams and they're so gripping and so compelling and i think i've got to get off and then i'm about to get off like no this is great and That's i think what makes it okay this is what hits me is the extreme passion of you and the people you're interviewing and yeah. I think that's inspiring for me, even though I don't understand half of what you're talking about, to tell you the <laughs> truth, because it's so inside baseball. It's like, what? It is inside baseball. Then absolutely. I got to do some, they'll, they'll mention something. I have to look online while you guys are talking. I'm like, oh, I get it. Good. No, that's a huge compliment. And I thank you. And I mean, that's, that's always the best uh, audio or video that happens to me. I was, you know, it's that great feeling of when you're in your car and you hear like getting, NPR had an amazing interview a couple of weeks ago. And I could not, and I was at where I was going, but I stayed in my car. I've done that. Gone. Absolutely, we all have. And that's the great thing is, is the story that's being told compelling. It, you know, how effective of a storyteller are you as a host? How effective are the guests? But it's not just that, it's also the passion because yeah. and even the, some of the people you talk to, they seem sort of laid back, but it, you don't have to be hyper to be passionate. And I can see, wow. And I remember you interviewed this one guy and I, and I even typed a comment. I said, he is living the dream. 
because he's achieved what he's wanted. He loves comics. He's working in the business. He's so busy. He's completely established. And that's really exciting. And, and that's the other thing is uh, now we've had so many generations of, of comic book fans that a lot of fans grow up to be professionals. And yeah, like you said, they're living the dream. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe all I get to have to do for my job is thinking about Batman all day and what he's going to do. And that's that's thrilling for them. And the same with any of these characters that they're writing. And also then that further step, when they've established their name and then can come up with uh, original ideas and their audience follows them and they become, Robert Kirkman was a great Marvel writer, loved writing Spider-Man, wanted the, Sp the regular Spider-Man job. That was his ambition. My friend Brian Bendis had the job and didn't want to let go of it. So, you know, Robert um, had always created his own characters on the side, but lucked out with Walking Dead and it suddenly became its own thing. And Robert did this incredible video that was played on a lot of news websites. And it was like, hey, stop giving DC and Marvel your best ideas because they will take them. You are working work for hire and the Flash will become a big character on television and you'll see very little compensation for it. Things have gotten better. And in the case of both DC and Marvel, they do uh, at, to a limited degree. It's still pennies compared to the millions and billions that they're making, but at least writers and artists get something. But can't they hire an agent? Can't they get an agent or a manager or something? Well, but, but they, yeah, but that's a at the very beginning of the career. And also so many people want this finite number of jobs writing or drawing for DC or Marvel that if someone is too big of a pain in the ass in terms of having representation and, and saying all these things, they'll just go to another very eager writer or artist. Or the other thing will happen where, especially in the case of, well, it happens to both writers and artists, they're, they're paid by the page and their page rate may go to a point where economics don't make sense anymore to hire that writer or artist because the return on sales isn't there. So thank you very much for your 10 years of service. We don't want your stories anymore. We're going to the next generation. And in a lot of ways that's good because that means the stories evolve for the, the younger audience and the current audience, but by the same token, it could be really lousy. A, a, a guy I spoke to last night is an incredible Marvel artist and DC artist. Luckily, he's still in enough demand that he can sell commissions, private commissions doing sketches and make a very good living doing that. Uh, but he hasn't, he hadn't done uh, sequential page by page uh, comic book uh, art, you know, drawing the books for like 10 years, but now, again, do he's doing okay. Now back to podcasting though. Do you have any advice for people who are pursuing podcasting? Because you are seriously one of the most successful. And I'm not, okay. The guys you're mentioning um, and even Adam Kroll and those people, they already had a broadcast media presence. So they had like, they could have take a million fans with them. Yes. Yes. But in your case, you're just a regular guy. So. Right. Well, I found a niche. I mean, it's, it's a combination of finding a niche I came in early, literally, I always said George Burns' joke about being uh, one of the top 10 comedy radio shows uh, in, back in the 30s. He's like, we were all in the top 10. There were only eight of us. And it's true. I mean, that's, that's the same thing with comic book podcasting. Uh, there, were, there really were only a handful of people doing podcasting that were focusing on comics. And a lot of them were Jimmy's podcast. This is what I read this week. Okay, fine. 
there weren't that many interview shows because, you know, as you know, you got to like have a, a bit of self-confidence to go into do an interview and do it well and not feel like, oh, God, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I can't believe this person's talking to me. Oh, I'm not paying attention. What did you just say? And it's like I got rid of all that very early in my radio career. Uh, I was very fortunate, even in small market radio, getting big opportunities for interviews because of the record companies and stuff. Got to talk to Smokey Robinson when I had only been on professional radio for maybe a year or two. Couldn't have been nicer to me. Great guy. I still love Smokey. He's amazing. Uh, but yeah, you know, so and and really in sports too, dealing with the jocks, the athletes and stuff, it's like you you better have confidence and show it. Otherwise, they're totally gonna blow you off and not and not uh, talk to you and stuff. So I, you know, you have to have, you have to have confidence Um, there. This is a skill and you do have to learn it and you can learn it by observing great radio hosts, great podcast hosts. Why are these people effective? Why is Conan O'Brien not only great six minutes at a time on television, but can have these intense conversations on his podcast. He knows what he's doing. Listen, listen to the way they're doing it. Listening. I mean, I, I, I know you and I have talked about this. You've got to listen because you can have a list of questions, but if you're really not paying attention, you're really not having a conversation. You are just doing an interview, a static interview, and that's okay, but I think you get much more out of paying attention. I mean, I always give that hypothetical of, you know, what, what, when did you break into writing? Well, you know, it was while I was in jail, I had had killed several people and buried them in my, my basement. And it's like, Okay, the next question that better not be, what's your favorite color? It's like, wait a minute, let's talk about these these murders that are part of your life. And I mean, obviously, that's the extreme example, but that it's never occurred to me, thankfully. But no, you know, it's like, oh, I've always been into uh, making ships in a bottle. Really? Let's talk about that for a second. And also, that warms the guest up to you because you are taking interest in something else about them beyond why they're on their show, your show. So you, you get a rapport, you try and build it, you disarm them enough that they're not overly protective and they really are willing to talk about themselves. And then the fans love it because then they will meet them at a convention or something and go, I had no idea you built ships in a bottle. I do that. And so now they've got a connection and it's like, wow, that was great. All I wanted was my book signed by my favorite Spider-Man artist, but because we both build ships in a bottle, we spent 10 minutes talking about that. So now I even had an even bigger experience meeting this guy and loving him even more. So again, it's like those kind of connections that you make yourself that again, the listeners can then feel like they've done it. And also, God, man, as you know, when you're listening to those great podcasts, you really feel like you're sitting in on the conversation. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, non, we're non-verbal participants. And I, and I love that about podcasting. And I think that, you know, and, and good radio and good television for that matter. It's been my experience that whether I agreed with a program director or not, when I've had interviews with program directors or managers, they certainly knew their business. And, you know, we're looking for, you know, someone that could fill a need that they had. And you also have to, especially back to broadcasting, you really have to have a very hard skin and shell and realize, look, it's not personal. It's business. Most of the right. time, very rarely is it personal. Um, it's, it's, you're not, you're, you know, they have a different need. Uh, again, we have no choice. We have to downsize. We're really sorry. And it's like, okay, no hard feelings. I mean, again, 
uh, in broadcasting, firing, being fired is an inevitability. And that's why I feel incredibly fortunate that I've created something that, um, you know, creates an income for me. So I don't have to rely on, on uh, broadcasting jobs. Yeah, another thing is you're one of the people who actually makes money from podcasting. You're not a huge yeah. national name. So how, right. how does that happen? One listener at a time, one guest at a time. I, I wish I could give you a formula to success. Again, you have to have a compelling uh, show that fills a niche in a way that others don't. Every subject I believe now is likely covered by podcasting. I it's so funny. Uh, my good friend Megan Reed, who passed away a few years ago, great Chicago radio personality. She was really into knitting, and she's like, "Yeah, I, it was a video podcast, so you could see the stitching." But she's like, "Oh, everything is covered," and I'm like, "You're right." It is all covered. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When I, did, when I did a search for Chicago podcasts to promote something, um, most of them were about sports. And I thought, how are they standing sure. out from each other? Well, again, yeah, that's the trick. And again, I don't know who makes money and who doesn't. I know that Barstool Radio does quite well for a sports uh, podcast network. Um, again, a lot of my friends that were former score hosts are doing podcasting now. And of course, like you said, they, they bring their name and their audience with them, which is great. Uh, but no, if you are just coming out of the blue, uh, you've got to be uh, effective. There are two Irish guys that do the most amazing Beatles podcast. It's called um, Nothing is Real, like from Stra Strawberry Fields. And it is so great because they will pick a subject and get so granular, like they picked the year leading up to the Beatles breakup. And what were they, what were each, what, what was each Beatle doing each month leading up to that breakup and connecting the dots? And this is why they finally broke up. Fascinating. And it's just two Irish guys. They don't know anybody. They didn't work for the Beatles. Uh, I have no idea what their backgrounds are, but they're so effective in their storytelling. And luckily, again, when we like a podcast, we all share it with our friends that might be like-minded. And I was able to do that um, with you know, several of podcasts that I love, but my good friend, Gabe Hardman, who's a, a Hollywood storyboard artist and an occasional comic book artist, uh, as we've gotten to know each other and become good friends, we were into the same kind of nerd stuff. And he's like, this is an amazing Beatles podcast. You've got to hear it. I'm like, okay. I just discovered it within the last month. I am so hooked on this show now. Karina, uh, Karina Longworth does a great old Hollywood podcast called You Must Remember This. And it's just single voice narration. She is telling the story. She's got music, mood music behind her. I love that. And I, it keeps making me want to do a narrative podcast that way. I might do it about boxing, actually. I really want to cover, and Chicago's a big part of the story, um, that period uh, after Joe Lewis retired up until the early 60s uh, when uh, the mob really controlled boxing in all aspects and uh, they had the television contracts and the radio contracts. And uh, it, it was a fascinating period. And if you wanted a title shot, you had no choice. You had to at least work with them. You didn't have to be part of them. There were independent uh, fighters that were too good to ignore. But they also uh, had to suffer BS losses because the mob controlled everything. And it's like, uh, tonight's not your night. And they would clearly win the fight, but the decision would go to the other guy. Wow. And, and all that's fascinating too. And that's why it's a, it really is 
almost Goodfellas meets uh, quiz show and Rocky in a lot of ways. And it's because again, it's kind of these early days of television when boxing was on three or four nights a week. And uh, yeah, I, it was, it, it, it's an interesting period, I think. And I think for, for boxing fans and it's another niche people are aware of the era but not the granular, this is what happened this month and stuff. So I really think it's an interesting limited series that I want to pursue. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.